All right, let's open up uh, by seeking the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning with your people to meet with them and also to call upon you and to worship you. We thank you for giving us hearts that want to be here this morning, that want to hear your word, that want to be more conformed to the image of Christ, that want to have our hearts enlarged for our God and for our Savior and for sinners. Do these good works of grace in our souls, Lord. We ask forgiveness for being hardened by the world and the impact that the world has upon us. We pray this would be a time of reversing and changing that in our own souls as your people. And we pray for those who may not yet have believed upon the Lord Jesus. We pray that through this ministry, through your spirit attending it, sinners would be converted and blessed through faith in Jesus and him alone. Give us grace as we come back to this uh, book of Acts, and we just pray for help as we seek to teach, preach, and listen and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to come back to this study that started many years ago in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the first part of chapter 17, if you'll turn there in your Bibles with me. And I was surprised to see that it's been two years uh, since I've preached on this uh, book, and we finished up chapter 16. Uh, I believe there was probably a two or three year hiatus <laughs> uh, from stopping 16 when I stepped down from formal ministry here. But I, I would like to work through the book and finish uh, the book that we started together. So we're going to come back to Acts 17 this morning, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses. Hopefully, we may not get through all of it. If not, we'll have to take it up. Uh, another time. But here uh, we are reading about the events of Paul's second missionary journey as Luke records them for us. He's left the church in Philippi that we read of in chapter 16, and he continues his ministry to the people of Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. And you'll remember why he is here. He is not here by accident. And it's important sometimes to go back and read the account to see you know, why Paul is now working through this northern part of Greece. And it's tied to the vision that he had while in Troas. You'll remember as Paul goes back to visit the churches in Galatia, to minister to them and to strengthen them. He tries to go to Bithynia and Myasia, and the Spirit says no, and the Spirit says no, and he's been told no, but he hasn't to been told yes where he is to go, and he ends up on the coast in Troas, wondering where the Lord wanted him to go. And it's in Troas we read of Paul's vision. From the Lord, he sees a man in his vision appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And it doesn't get any clearer than that. From the vision, Paul immediately and clearly knows what his call is, where he's to go next to bring the gospel, and he goes. And as we think of this cry for help, I just thought it's just, being reminded of it, that we would see the lost world this way, as, as people calling for help, as seeing people around us as those who are needy sinners, crying out to believers to come and help them, and to see the world the way it really is. People are drowning in sin. They're on their way to hell. And we have the life preserver. We have what Paul had, the gospel of salvation that the world desperately needs. And I just thought and prayed, may I see the world like this? And not as, as I often see it, you know, you get hardened, you get discouraged, uh, you know, you get to feel what sometimes the psalmist feels, praying in precatory prayers. We see so much wickedness that just doesn't seem to be uh, going away and, and getting any less. But brethren, these are people in need. 
So Paul has a clear vision of where to go. He's to go to Macedonia. That's why he's here. And we're reading about his time now in Macedonia. A church of believers has been established by God and the preaching of the gospel in Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 17. And now Paul moves to Thessalonica and then to Berea in our uh, text. He's preaching from one city to the next. He's confident of his call to be in these places. He's confident that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Um, His beating and imprisonment in Philippi, interestingly enough, are not deterrents to his ministry. He doesn't somehow interpret the reception he gets in Philippi, the beatings and the imprisonment as, well, God must not want me in Philippi, or maybe he doesn't want me in Macedonia. He wasn't interpreting where he needed to be by the difficulty of being there, but by the clear direction and vision of God. The people in Macedonia needed his help. The Lord directed him there. And whether he's beaten, whether he's imprisoned, whatever he has to suffer, he's going to preach the gospel in obedience to God and for the benefit of sinners. It's important for us to understand the way to determine God's will. It's not by what's easier for us. The way to determine God's will is asking the question of the Scriptures and of other brethren. What is the Lord's will for me? What does He want me to do? How is He guiding me from His Word? And sometimes that path, as we know, brother, is going to be difficult. It's going to mean hardship. It's going to sometimes mean suffering. And Paul was no stranger to it, and he pressed on. So from Philippi, filled with boldness and courage, he moves on to the next city to do the exact same thing filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with Holy Spirit wrought passion and boldness for God and and a willingness to endure hardship. What a great example uh, for me and for us, brethren, as we seek to do the work of our Lord in our own generation. His suffering was part of the preaching of the gospel. He um, comes to Thessalonica, a major city in Macedonia, for trade by land and sea. And it's along what's called the Ignatian Way. This was a road built by the Romans to make an easy way of travel for soldiers and trade from the coast of northern Greece on the west all the way to the east to the Byzantium, uh, to the city of Byzantium in, in those days, or Istanbul, Turkey, near the Black Sea in our day. In this section of chapter 17 uh, that we're going to consider, Luke primarily highlights Paul's missionary approach and experience when evangelizing in the synagogue. The last half of the chapter, Luke highlights Paul's evangelistic approach and experience preaching the gospel to pagan Gentiles living in Athens. And you could say Luke highlights Paul's method of preaching to the Jews in contrast to his method of preaching to the Gentiles. But as we will see, it's not that simple because when he comes into these synagogues, he doesn't just find Jews. He finds God-fearing Greeks. So it's more of Paul's ministry in the synagogue as opposed to those who were outside of the synagogue. Those who were in the synagogue, whether they were Greeks, Gentiles, or Jews, were those who regularly heard the word, who regularly heard of the Jewish tradition and worship, whether they were Jews or not. And those who had a knowledge, in other words, of the Bible were approached differently from people who were completely illiterate, biblically illiterate let's say. And we see those two approaches here. And both sets of sinners, no matter what their background, can and ought to be evangelized. But the approach is going to be different based upon where they're at and their understanding of the scriptures, based upon their upbringing, their culture, all of these things Paul took into account when preaching the word of God. But he first goes to the synagogue, which was his practice, as we'll see, and then he'll get down to Athens in the latter part of the chapter, and we'll see how he approaches those who are completely illiterate of the Scriptures and of the God of the Bible and how he comes and preaches the Gospel to them. 
So in the first part of chapter 17, we want to look at the gospel preaching, power, and persecution in Thessalonica. And then we'll look at those three things, the same things in Berea, gospel preaching, power, and persecution there. And then the manner, spirit, and heartfelt motive of genuine gospel ministry as evidenced in 1 Thessalonians 2. We get the facts about him going to these cities uh, through Luke and this historical account. But to capture the real spirit of Paul, the kind of minister that he was, as he engaged with people, that comes out in Paul's writings, uh, especially to the Thessalonians. And it really does shed a lot of light on the historical narrative. So if we have time, we'll get to that as well today. But first of all, the gospel preaching power and persecution in Thessalonica. So if you have your, your Bibles open to Acts 17, let's read the first couple of verses. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. So if the city had a Jewish synagogue, Paul found it, and he began his gospel preaching in it. And Luke tells us this was Paul's custom and Paul's regular practice. The gospel was for the Jew first, and then the Gentile. The community was to understand. The community that was engaged in, in worship in the synagogue was to understand the connection between the Jewish faith, worship, and scriptures with the gospel. So Paul would establish right at the outset that the gospel was not something entirely new, but is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. Christ is preached throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures that these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who attended synagogue worship should be familiar with. And so it was his practice to go to the Old Testament and to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And then to, of course, preach the life of Christ and to show how Jesus is the Christ and the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. So Jesus Christ was not some radical new cult leader with a completely and entirely new religion. Now, there is a newness to the covenant, but there is this connection, obviously, to the Old Testament promised Messiah and Christ of the Bible. And so the goal he had was to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything our Bible, our scriptures, that the Lord has given us, has told us. He reasoned with those in the synagogue, it says, for three Sabbaths from the Scriptures. His preaching of the Gospel was based on and supported by the Scriptures, what we describe today as the Old Testament. The first step in evangelizing Jewish people is to start with the Jewish Scriptures alone. Many Jews today, in our own day, will often talk about the teaching of the rabbis, the Talmud, and the Mishnah, which are writings containing rabbinical teaching about how to observe the Torah or the law. And it's here that many Jewish people will start when you engage them about the gospel and the things of God. Jesus and the apostles focused their teaching on Moses and the prophets. Even in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, it was the tradition of men that the Jews seem to overemphasize and focus on to the neglect of the Scriptures. And as we read the Gospels, you see Jesus repeatedly coming back to as it is written, and from the beginning it was not so, and bringing the Jews in their thinking back to the Scriptures and away from what they were used to emphasizing, which was the rabbinical teaching and the teaching of men, the commentary about how to obey the law and not the law itself. And in doing that, they were drawn away from the true teaching of the Scriptures. And so that's what Paul is doing here. The focus of Paul's teaching was to take the Jewish mind and heart back to the Bible alone. 
And I think it's so important to do this when speaking with Jewish people and evangelizing Jewish people in our own day as well. Genesis to Malachi ought to be what we share, um, ought to be the thing that we speak about because we share it in common. But it's often neglected and buried under the mounds of Talmud and Jewish rabbis teaching about it, which sadly hides it and obscures it. And I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. I've experienced it in the past where, you know, you begin to talk about Isaiah 53 and the, and the Jewish scriptures, and uh, there, there's almost a complete deer-in-the-headlight ignorance of it or, or an inability to even want to speak about it. I once was directed to the rabbi of a Jewish man. Well, you should, you should talk to him. And, you know, he was very uncomfortable even engaging conversation over it. Um, and I think a lot, in large part it's because there's a huge focus on these oral traditions that have been passed down, this oral teaching of rabbis over the years, uh, which was basically put into print in the first couple, like 300 centuries after Christ. And there's a huge emphasis on that, just as in Jesus' day, which really obscures the Bible. And it's a sad, sad thing to see, but it's something that I think uh, we should follow uh, Paul in his practice here. Uh, did you have your hand up, uh, Ron? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. The great Jewish Christian preachers of the Bible took their countrymen back to the Scriptures and called upon them to really appreciate its teaching about the Messiah and about our greatest need as human beings. And, you know, you can read some of these sermons in the Bible. Stephen is a great example of this in Acts 7 when he's pointing out the stubbornness of his generation to believe in Jesus as the Christ, he shows his gener this generation who was rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ that they were really spiritually sons of their fathers who had always rejected the teaching of God through the prophets. They were the ones who stoned the prophets, those who were sent to them. And he shows them from history that they are acting consistent spiritually with their fathers who rejected the word of Moses and his leadership out of Egypt into the promised land and uh, the teaching of David and so forth and the true meaning of the tabernacle. It's a beautiful illustration of a Jewish Christian believer preaching to his countrymen out of love for them to see them repent and believe. And also just highlighting that their greatest problem was not outside of themselves in the form of Roman rule, but their greatest problem was sin. This is the teaching, isn't it, brethren, of the whole Bible, from the beginning of Genesis. Very clear that our greatest problem is not outside of us individually, in the form of a government, and the fact that we don't have freedom, political freedom. The greatest problem we have is inward and spiritual and it's individual and it's something all of us have and it's our sin problem. And that's the real thing that the Christ would be sent into the world to solve and to save us from. <clears throat> we all know how they reacted to the preaching of Stephen being convicted and cut to the heart. They stoned him. And it was at this time, as his spirit is leaving his body, he sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and he prays that he would not lay this sin to their charge, willing to give his life for his countrymen and faithfully preaching to them the Bible. You see, the Talmud and Mishnah, the rabbinical teaching about the law, the traditions of men, never cuts people to the heart, like the Bible does. The Bible is described as a two-edged sword. It cuts down into the soul of men, convicts them of their sin, of the righteousness of God, and of the judgment to come. And whether people are Jewish by ethnicity and religion, or Gentile, it's always the same response. Okay, they're either brought to conviction of sin and cry out, Lord, what must I do to be saved? They call upon the Lord Jesus for salvation. Or they hate it. Because the true preaching of the Bible gets men 
in the heart of what the real issue is and reminds them of their sin and their love of sin and their rejection of God. And that's why it's so important for us individually and as a church to continue to be committed to the teaching of the Bible alone. Because when we begin to add man's teaching to the Bible, we're going to lose the power of the Bible to save people, to sanctify them, and to make them more like the Lord Jesus. This is where we must focus the attention today in the preaching of the Gospel. Knowing that human nature resists it, Satan will seek deceptive ways to hide it and bury it in church tradition and in messages that sound like the Gospel. Do we have any of those floating around in our day? No, it kind of sounds good. You're hearing Jesus being spoken of. You know, the Gospel is mentioned. The Bible is quoted. But there's something about it. You might not even be able to describe it, but there's just something about it that doesn't seem right. There's something about it you've never heard in all your years of reading the Bible. And this is the way Satan is doing the same thing in the professing Christian church. He's flooding it with all kinds of deceptive lies and twisting and distorting it. And because people are not encouraged to look to the Scriptures and to know the Scriptures, they're being duped and deceived. And there's thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people being deceived by false teachers who don't teach the Bible alone, don't encourage their, their, uh, their uh, members of their churches to read the Bible for themselves and to abide by the Bible's teaching in terms of faith and life. And it's exceedingly sad how Satan is using the same method to encourage men and women on their way to hell. Our own remaining sin resists the clear teaching of God's Word, doesn't it, sometimes? I mean, we feel uncomfortable, even as believers. We have an inward principle that doesn't like being reminded of the Scriptures. We feel it in our own hearts. And sometimes we might be tempted to give in and to go easy on ourselves and to not expose ourselves to the Scripture or to maybe follow some teaching that seems easier to listen to and it's not as convicting. Well, brethren, we need to pray for grace to resist that and always say yes to the Bible and no to our sin and to fight our sin and to resist that impulse to put the Bible away and to go our own way. Because once we do that, it'll be the beginning of the end. It'll be the beginning of the end. So we need to welcome preaching from God's Word, whether it's easy to hear or difficult to hear, and we need to always own up to our sin as we hear the Word of God and repent and believe in Christ, the Savior of sinners, the one who will forgive us our sin if we confess it and forsake it. So what did Paul try to convince them about from the Scriptures? Well, two things are mentioned by Luke here. And I'm sure he did a whole bunch of other things too, but at least these two things were the thrust of his teaching and thrust of his goal as he sought to persuade these people familiar with the Scriptures about the Gospel. The first thing is that the Christ of the Old Testament Jewish Scripture had to suffer, die, and rise again. That the Christ spoken about in the Jewish Bible, the Savior spoken of, was going to be a suffering Savior, a suffering servant. And he needed to break through all their concepts, their false concepts of what they believed the Christ was going to be and do. Explaining and giving evidence, we read in verse 3, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. We know that this concept of the Christ was completely foreign, to many first century Jewish minds, not all, but many. We do see, like in Luke 2, the godly Simeons who understood the spiritual significance of who Jesus was as the Christ, the glory of his people Israel, and a light unto the Gentiles. There were people in the first century who understood what the Jewish Messiah, Christ, would be and what he would come to do, but many were confused. And this concept of a suffering Christ to many, even the apostles who followed Jesus, 
The concept and idea that he would suffer, die, and rise again, completely foreign to their own thinking. They were slow to understand and believe all that Jesus taught them regarding himself. He speaks of himself again and again using a term they knew, identified the Christ, and spoke of the Christ, terms like the Son of Man which Jews in the first century understood when you spoke of the Son of Man from Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament, you were speaking of someone considered to be the Christ. Those passages spoke about the Messiah, the Christ. He identified himself with the Son of Man, with the great eternal King spoken of in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And you read those passages in Daniel 7, and it doesn't sound like the Christ is going to be one who suffers. His dominion, and glory and kingdom in that passage is spoken of as an everlasting one and as one which will not pass away. But Jesus says in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Completely foreign. This was Paul's goal. To use the Bible to teach these Jews that the Christ would be an eternal king, but he also had to suffer and die and all the reasons for that because he was a different Christ from the Christ they anticipated. And the Jews were being called to change their thinking that their thinking would be more like God's thinking. To conform their thinking about the Christ to God's thinking and to turn away from false concepts and man's ideas and be conformed in their thinking to the thinking of God about the Christ. This was one of the major thrusts of Paul's ministry in the synagogue. To redefine who the Christ really is for the first century Jew who had a complete misconception of who the Christ was. Not a small task. Not an easy task, right? I mean, how would you feel if you were in the first century, you were a believer, and God said, okay, Adam, go into this city. You don't know anybody. The first synagogue you see, go in there, and your job is to convince these people, leaders and all, that Christ is not going to be like they think he is. You think that would stir up some trouble? I'd be afraid to do that. That would be really scary and complicated, wouldn't that? That was Paul's goal in teaching from the Scriptures about the Gospel. One of his main thrusts was to explain and give it evidence that the Christ had to suffer. Jesus did this throughout his ministry. He said in John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent, Numbers 21, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, the Christ, be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Jesus also taught in John 3.16 what the Old Testament taught about the Christ too. And this is something we won't spend too much time on, but it's important to understand that He was the Christ and Messiah for all men everywhere, not just the Jews. So not only are you going to upset the Jews by telling them, look, the Christ you're expecting is not the Christ who's coming. He's going to first come to suffer, die, and rise again. And then he's going to come in his eternal kingdom. Okay? That's one thing. The second thing is, I hate to break it to you guys, but the Jewish Messiah is a Messiah and a Savior of sinners everywhere. Jesus says this right after he speaks about Moses' serpent being lifted up in the wilderness for the Jew. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That the Jewish Messiah was actually a Savior of sinners, made up of members of the whole human race every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. That this is way, way bigger than just one nation, but involves and is beneficial and is practical for all human beings, no matter their background or ethnic heritage. 
In Luke 24, we read of the risen Lord Jesus teaching the two disciples on the road to, road to Emmaus in verses 25 through 27, where he goes through all of the scriptures. And what does he do? He teaches them about how the Christ was to suffer, die, rise again, and enter into his kingdom. And as these two disciples were hearing about it, they said their hearts burned within them. As he told them about himself in all of the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Paul's doing. What Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. What Jesus did throughout his life. There's great examples of this for us. If you want to read Acts chapter 2, where Peter uses the Old Testament to prove Jesus is the Christ, the one pouring out the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. Stephen in Acts 7. Paul in Acts 13. A very specific example there of how they used the Old Testament to explain that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. It was the main mission of Christ coming into the world to save us from a greater enemy than political kings, queens, and the rulers of this world, but to save us from the damning influence and power of our own sin. To save us from an enemy within not without, to reconcile us to God in truth and to give us salvation from our sin and its consequences. You see, the world, even today, brethren, as in the first century, will have many Christs and many saviors, except saviors who save them from their sin and call them to repent. There's people who say they love Jesus, they preach Jesus, they attend churches that profess to worship Jesus. But it's a Jesus of their own imagination. It's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And that's where we, again, are encouraged to be discerning. And many of you, brethren, are discerning. And we thank God for that. But to continue to be discerning, because not all those who say they're serving and following Jesus are serving and following Jesus. And it's a huge grief, isn't it? It's a Jesus according to their own imagination, according to their own teaching, and according to their own whim. It's a Jesus who came to be an example for us. He just came to be an example. He's a great prophet, a great teacher, and a great example for how we should live our life. They don't believe that Jesus actually came. Yes, to be a good example, to one to follow, to learn how to obey God and serve God. But he also came, this was his main goal in coming, was to die on the cross as a substitute in the place of sinners. So that we could be set free so that we could be forgiven, so that our sins could be paid for, and we could be reconciled to God both in this life and forever. To save us from our greatest problem, which is our sin problem, right? That's the Christ of the Bible. That's the Jesus of the Jewish Scriptures and of the New Testament. He's a Savior from sin, our sin. And we were called to repent and believe in him. Now, I just, I just thought about this, this task, this responsibility about preaching Christ from the Old Testament, trying to convince people that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again. And I said, well, like, where would I go? And so I thought, you know, it's Sunday school, and I don't ask a lot of questions often. You're probably going to be taken off guard. But where would you go, brother? If we had someone of a Jewish background come into church, they started talking to you about their background, and, and they asked you about what you think, and you know, why do you believe Jesus is, is a suffering Jesus? Why is the Christ a suffering Christ? Like, where would you go in the Old Testament? If all you had was the Old Testament, what passages would you go to? Anybody? Yes? Isaiah 53. Talks about the servant, the suffering servant all throughout Isaiah. The servant is clearly another name given for the Christ or the Messiah. And Isaiah 53 is pretty descriptive as to what the servant of the Lord is going to be, what his experience is going to be like. You know, that, that he was going to die not for his sins, but the sins of others. Great passage. Any place else? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all throughout David's prayer there, you see the heart of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, the prayers of Christ while he suffered and died on the cross, aspects of the Christ's death and suffering on the cross as well are, are spoken of there, not a bone being broken and other things in that passage. Anything else? 
It's not easy, is it? Where would we go? Where would we turn? Go ahead. Absolutely. Genesis 3.15. I mean, Genesis is beautiful because let's work through all the white noise of all that we've been taught, and let's go back to the beginning. And let's go back to how we got here, all right, what the world was at one time, what happened to it, the fall in Genesis 3, and God's response to the fall, right? Genesis 3.15. I love Genesis 3.15 because it's actually a covenant commitment to Satan himself. Right? It's a promise to Satan that what he did is going to be overturned. That there's going to be a Savior that comes, not just from the Jews, because the Jews weren't in existence at this time, even before the Jews. There's going to be a Savior born of the woman. Someone's going to be born who's going to do what Adam did not. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And somebody beautifully visualizes for me at one point. You know, Jesus Christ on the cross crushed Satan, defeated him. Satan had his whole army against Christ trying to defeat him, trying to get him to sin. Think one simple thought while on the cross. He had the whole legions of hell coming against Christ. While Christ is pinned between heaven and earth, naked and ashamed, enduring the judgment of God, Satan is completely active, trying to destroy him. And at that point in time, Jesus is literally crushing his head. But while he's crushing his head, the fangs of the serpent of Satan are digging into his heel. And he's bruising the heel of Jesus, but Jesus keeps pressing, pressing and pressing and pressing until that enemy is ultimately defeated. But it's a painful process, isn't it? But he's incomplete. You, you get the picture of a man, yes, snakes, people are afraid of them. And, but we're a lot bigger than most snakes, right? And venomous ones, what are three feet long. I mean, they're still scary. I get it and everything else. But like a full-blown man stepping on the head of a serpent, like there's no match. He's got, once you get the head, that's it, right? That's Satan and Jesus. Beautiful, Genesis 3.15. The, the, when you go back and you look at Acts 13 and Acts 2 and other places where Peter and Paul are preaching about Christ, they repeatedly go to Psalm 16 when it speaks of the Holy One who will not, I will not allow my Holy One to undergo decay. And then they begin to explain that while David wrote this, David is dead and buried. He wasn't speaking about himself. He's speaking about the Christ. He's speaking about the Christ who would die but who would not lay long in the grave. Because he's the Holy One of God and he would be raised from the dead. Act, or Psalm 15, 16 speaks about the resurrection and they often would go to that and quote it. All throughout the scriptures we read of the need of a suffering servant. Jesus points to Moses and the serpent in the wilderness and says that is a type of me. That is preaching about what the Savior would do. It's a beautiful illustration how the Savior would be lifted up upon a cross and all who are suffering the effects, not of a snake bite, but of sin, which is killing them and taking them to hell, all who look to Him, as the Israelites in the wilderness looked to the serpent, were healed. They will be healed. They'll be forgiven. He said, that is speaking of me, a beautiful illustration. That speaks of me. All the tabernacle sacrifices for what? Sin, right? Speak of what I am going to do. The one sacrifice. Hebrews opens this up. As the writer to the Hebrew believers is saying, guys, don't go back to the types. You got the substance. You got the fulfillment of all these things. Why would you go back to shadows when you got the real thing? These things are all shadows of what Christ would do. And He's done it. And you have Him. You want to go back to the priests? He's our great high priest. There's no one greater. You want to go back to Moses? Moses said, look for Him, a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, like me that the Lord is going to bring. Listen to Him. That's speaking of Jesus, right? The one whose blood is precious and able to forgive sinners. Why? Because it's the blood 
of Emmanuel, of God the Son, the unique identity of Christ as the eternal Son of God, fully man. That blood is so precious and valuable, able to cleanse any sin and any sinner completely, fully and forever. This is the blood we've been looking forward to. This is the blood that all the Old Testament sacrifices are pointing forward to. The greatest need men have, Jew and Gentile, is to be forgiven. We don't need the temple back. We've got Jesus, right? Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6 speak about how he would be a savior not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. A light for the Gentiles. The glory the excellence of his people, Israel. That's who Jesus is. He's the best thing Israel has provided the human race. Much more than religion. It's Jesus. So these are the texts, ones you've mentioned and others they would go to to explain and show how Christ must suffer. The next thing Paul did was to explain and prove that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so now we know. Or at least he tries to convince us Christ is a suffering Christ. Now he's got the job of saying, well, this Jesus is the Christ that the Old Testament speaks about. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So now, this is a beautiful language here where he's proving, literally the Greek, many of the commentators pointed to that this out, and I think they're accurate in doing so, placing beside, he's proving, he's showing the Old Testament prophecy of the Christ, and then he's showing how in the life of Christ Jesus fulfilled it placing the life of Christ right next. Marcia, Isaiah 53, right next to those passages. This is how Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage that speaks about the Christ. Then moving on to the next passage that speaks about the Christ. Here's the life of Jesus. This is what he did. He was unique in that he healed people. He raised people from the dead. He did things only God could do. He spoke to creation and said, be still and it listened. He proved himself to be more than a man, but to be fully God. He revealed and displayed his authority over creation, his authority over disease, his authority over Satan and demons. How many demons said, Lord, have you come to torment us before the time? And Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. And the demons obeyed him. Authority over the demonic world and over the influences of Satan in the first century. And people saw this. And they marveled at him. And they said, what kind of man is this? Well, the Bible in the Old Testament speaks about more than the Christ being a suffering Christ. Right? It speaks about the Christ being God. So they would go to the Old Testament and show all the places that spoke about the Christ and show how the Christ was exceedingly unique in that he's called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 9 and other places. He's the Holy One who will not undergo corruption. He's the one Jesus points to when he says, well, how is it that David says of his son, Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If he's David's Lord, how is it he's David's son? Well, because the Christ is divine. He's divine. And this is how Jesus proved his divinity. He gave blind men their eyes, lame men their legs, dead men. He called forth to life. So it wasn't just preaching the Old Testament. It was preaching the Old Testament things that spoke about the Christ. And then they preached Jesus and said, this is, this is why... We're preaching to you, Jesus is the Christ. This is all, the, it's undeniable. We witnessed it, we saw it. And don't forget Paul's own experience. He saw the Lord himself alive on the road to Damascus. He said, Lord, Lord. He didn't even know who he was, but he knew he was God. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He saw the risen Lord Jesus from heaven in all of his exalted glory, undeniably alive, undeniably speaking to him. 
And he would bring that in from time to time. So he did more than just these two things. These two things involve a lot, don't they? The kind of Savior Jesus would be, how he would be a Savior for a Jew and Gentile, which you know the God-fearing Gentiles rejoice to hear that. You know, passages like Isaiah 49 and other places that speak about he will be a light unto the Gentiles. Savior of sinners, not just Jew, but Gentile too. So he's placed in the life of Christ next to the promises about Christ, the life of Jesus. This is how Jesus fulfills this one and that one and the other one. And by the way, I saw him. Be careful to make sure the Jesus people speak about in our day is the Jesus of this book and this book alone, brethren. And any other Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. We still have this problem in our own day. And the devil still uses this deceptive tool of encouraging people to believe in Jesus, but a Jesus of their own making. A Jesus that is not the Jesus of our Bibles. How many thousands or hundreds of thousands believe that Jesus is, their, is the Christ, but their definition is man-made and self-serving? Are you speaking about the Christ and Jesus of the Bible? Many times they are not. And then we see the gospel power. And some of them, speaking of the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Some of them, who of the Jews, some were persuaded and believed. A large number, though, of God-fearing Greeks believed in Thessalonica. And a number of leading women. So there were influential Greek people attending the synagogue. And it's no surprise, this is an important trading city. A lot of money flowed into this city. Where people sold things and did their business there. No doubt people of means and influence. One commentator says that the Macedonian women, interestingly to note, had unusual freedom and influence in Macedonian culture. Very unique. These women did not have to ask their permissions, one example might be, to attend synagogue and could think for themselves. Some of these women came to faith in Christ weren't afraid to tell their husbands. They were influential women of means and of influence in this Greek city. God was doing something with Paul to the Jews in this city, I believe. Perhaps this was a form of judgment designed to rebuke them for their sinful use of the synagogue as a means of unjust gain. Did they turn this synagogue and place of worship and prayer into a robber's den like their countrymen did back in Jerusalem? with the temple. Remember, they would all go back to the temple once a year for the great feasts and the Passover. And they would see what the priests and what the religious leaders were doing there. Is it too far to deduce that probably they brought some of those money-making practices back to the synagogues? In cities like Thessalonica, these were big, bustling cities, lots of people with lots of money. Money that could come into the synagogue if they did it right. If they promised to give some sort of religion that would get people closer to God, people would pay money, right? Did they do that? I don't know. Just a guess. If I had to guess, I would say yes. Was God saving the influential and affluent among them to cut off the money flow? And cut off the honor these Greeks gave these Jewish leaders as those who spoke from God? Like these people seem to be sincerely interested in knowing the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews. You know, perhaps it was hard for them to go into a Jewish synagogue, and, and nevertheless they went because they were, they were hungry. They wanted to hear about God, and, and these religious leaders were holding that before them. But if, you're not God, if you want to know God, you've got to be like this. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to do this thing. You've got to do that thing. And you've got to pay money to the synagogue. You've got to pay money to the temple. Were they holding that over these people who had a sincere desire to learn about the Lord? Maybe. These Jewish leaders who supposedly spoke from God. Was the Macedonian call a vision of Greeks being bamboozled and lied to and misled by Jewish synagogue leaders? 
In part, yes. Maybe these people were praying and earnestly seeking God, but their religious leaders were blind and they were being misled and maybe they were seeking God from their hearts, the God of the Jews, but they had no way to know how to get right with Him. And maybe it was through the prayers of these Greeks that God heard and said, Paul, Bithynia is later, my age is later, you need to go to Thessalonica. Is that too hard to imagine? Or the girl who had a demon cast out of her. That was another example represented in the Macedonian man, come help us. Using girls possessed by the Spirit for material gain, and God said, enough. Come to me and be delivered. Were these leaders of the Jewish synagogue and their followers more interested in the honor and money of these Greeks than they were seeing these Gentiles blessed by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If I had to guess, I would say yes. Look at their response to gospel persecution. They became jealous, verse 5, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find him, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Jason gets out on bail. City authorities maybe do it quietly. But these Jews are caught to the heart. Like not only are they convicted of sin, but maybe their money-making scheme's over. Jesus, through Paul, goes in there and turns the tables over (laughs) and says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Maybe that's why they were there. Some believed. Most, it seems, did not. And here the gospel continues to go forward. And he continues to be faithful in preaching it, and God blesses it. It's the aroma of life to life to some, and a savor of death to death to others. Only two responses. Either hate Jesus or you love him. That's it. Oh, may God bless the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's pray.